The Crimopedia podcast is a completely independent show that explores content of a potentially violent and disturbing nature. Please use your listening discretion. Extra trigger warning for this episode. We will be discussing missing and murdered Indigenous women and some history around the injustices faced by Indigenous peoples in Canada, both past and present. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. I'm your host, Allison, and today we are going to touch on a topic that is close to my heart, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls of Canada, or the MMIWG. Indigenous peoples of Canada have an endlessly long history full of fascinating and beautiful culture, wisdom, knowledge, and unfortunately, carefully curated oppression against them by European colonizers. The juxtaposition of indigenous belief systems in love of all life and all things, with the violence they have faced both in the past and present, is a jarring reality that Canada as an institution continues to fall short in recognizing. The extent of both indigenous culture and history are far beyond the scope of one episode, or really even my current understanding as I am on a continuous journey of learning truths and unlearning totally fabricated histories that are delivered today in the Canadian Catholic school system. As a part of my commitment to learning and allyship, I am starting a series on this show about the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls of Canada, a heavy topic that intersects with all sorts of consequences of our colonial history. Each episode in this series will come out on the 15th of each month until the end of the year, and in each we are going to learn together how and why there is an epidemic of Indigenous women and girls in Canada going missing and being murdered. I ask that you join me in learning and engaging in active true crime consumption with these episodes, sending love to the families and donations to their causes if applicable. In addition, I ask that you welcome a bit of a history lesson alongside each case that we'll dive into. Today, we are visiting the cases of Tamara Chipman and Roxanne Fleming, two young Indigenous women who disappeared in the province of British Columbia, a province with a vast reputation for being dangerous for Indigenous women and girls, as law enforcement has historically neglected outcries from family members about patterns of missing people. With that, let's jump right in. In May of 2006, the Canadian federal government approved and signed an agreement called the Indian Residential Schools Settlement Agreement. The goals of this agreement were to enact reconciliation between the Canadian settler government and the Indigenous peoples of Canada after a long, treacherous history of systematic oppression, abuses of power, and the residential school system. In particular, the residential school system is a dark part of Canada's history. Indigenous children were forcibly removed from their homes and placed into day schools where they were abused in various ways and for various reasons. Notably, if a child spoke their native language at school, they were abused. Physical and sexual abuse for speaking Indigenous languages is one of the many reasons why Indigenous languages are largely being lost in Canada, with some having very few speakers left in the entire world and are at risk of being eliminated completely, lost alongside all of the knowledge that they carry. 
In recent years, there have been thousands of bodies of children found in mass graves at former residential school sites, many of whom remain unnamed today. When these children were sent to these residential schools, the parents of them were silenced and forced to accept their losses without argument, leaving many parents and direct survivors to deal with the intense trauma that leaks into the lives of indigenous peoples today. One fact that always shakes me to my core is that the last residential school was closed in only 1996, only three years before I was born. Many survivors walk among us today. Implementation of the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement began in the fall of 2007, and part of the responsibilities of the Canadian federal government included financial reparations for residential school survivors and establishment of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There is still active controversy and very real injustices against Indigenous peoples of Canada being allowed by the government today, but for now, I'd like to focus on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and how its establishment led to the national inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission was established in 2008, and much of their responsibility lies in accountability, using data and statistics to advocate for changes in legislation related to the welfare of Indigenous Canadians. One of the most famous reports ever published by the Commission was the final report in June 2015. From it, the 94 calls to action were created. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission compiled its final report on the full comprehensive history of the residential school system in Canada before disbanding and passing on all of their records to the National Research Centre for Truth and Reconciliation within the University of Manitoba. But, although disbanded now, the 94 calls to action solidified the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's place in history by documenting specifically, and without room for argument, exactly what various different sectors and all individuals can do to enact and support reconciliation efforts with the Indigenous peoples of Canada. The 94 calls to action document is split into subsections, stuff like child welfare, education, equity in the legal system, museums and archives, and justice. Some of the calls to action under these headings include items such as calling on all levels of government in Canada to allow residential school survivors to reclaim their names, as when they were forcibly removed from their homes as young children to attend these schools, their culture, language, clothes, and evidently their names were stripped away alongside their dignity Call to action number 41, under the subheading of justice, is a call upon the federal government in consultation with Indigenous organizations to appoint and conduct a public inquiry into the patterns of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada. This inquiry was supposed to include investigations into their cases, as well as into the patterns of their cases. Patterns of disproportion resulting in Indigenous women representing 16% of homicides in Canada, between 1980 and 2012. This number was despite Indigenous women only making up approximately 4% of the total population, and current numbers now show that Indigenous women make up 24% of homicides in Canada, and yet their total population metric hasn't changed very much. In December of 2015, in response to this particular call to action, the Canadian federal government announced the launch of the National Inquiry into the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, which commenced on September 1st, 2016. Between November of 2016 and March of 2017, 
Meetings with regional groups, national organizations, and community visits took place, and then in February of 2017, the National Family Advisory Circle was formed. This advisory circle helped to guide the scope of the National Inquiry, and included members who were family members of missing and murdered Indigenous women themselves. These people include Denise Pictou Maloney of the Siptinikatik First Nation, whose mother was a victim of homicide. Jeanette Pitsulak Brewster, whose aunt was murdered and whose cousin has been missing since 2010. And Melanie Morrison from the Mohawk Territory of Wake, whose sister was murdered and her remains were discovered four years later. A year after the inquiry began, in November of 2017, an interim report titled Our Women and Girls Are Sacred was published, which was the precursor to the June 2019 final report of the inquiry. The final report, the final cumulative investigation into the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada, was jarring. The report contains statistics about the frequency of violence faced by Indigenous women and girls in Canada, some of which include the following. At the time the final report came out, 48% of children in the Canadian foster care system were Indigenous. Many have called the overrepresentation of Indigenous children in the child welfare system simply a wolf in sheep's clothing, a second attempt at forced assimilation through targeted violence and disruption of families after the closure of residential schools. Further, according to the final report, in some communities, vulnerable and exploited Indigenous youth comprise up to 90% of the sex trade despite representing only about 10% of the population in said communities. Additionally, Indigenous women and girls are 12 times more likely to be killed or become missing than any other woman in Canada, 16 times more than any Caucasian woman in Canada. And finally, Indigenous women are more than 7 times likely to be murdered by a serial killer. Prior to the inquiry, back in 2005, the British Columbia E Division of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or the RCMP, created Project E-PANA. E-PANA is a task force dedicated to missing and murdered Indigenous women along a particular stretch of highway in British Columbia. Highway 16 extends from Prince Rupert all the way to Prince George in British Columbia. And these two cities are about 700 kilometers or 450 miles away from each other. Highway 16 has been colloquially referred to as the Highway of Tears, given the numerous accounts of Indigenous women disappearing along this isolated stretch of highway, which only recently got full cellular coverage along the entire road. Consequently, when EPANA was formed, it was referred to as the Highway of Tears Task Force, but now, it has morphed into an amalgamation of investigations into homicides and disappearances connected to three other highways in that area. Combined, the task force oversees 18 different investigations, but since its commencement in 2005, only one conviction has ever been registered in almost 17 years, and that's 71-year-old Gary Handlin. He was convicted of first-degree murder in the death of 12-year-old Monica Jack based on a confession elicited during a sting operation conducted by the EPANA task force. 12-year-old Monica was last seen riding her bike along Highway 16, nearby Narret, British Columbia, just south of Prince George, in May of 1978. It's been long speculated that there is a serial killer or collection of killers that use these series of highways as their hunting grounds for vulnerable women. 
Although the ePANA website specifies it's highly unlikely that one person is solely responsible for all of these murders and disappearances, after the case of Robert Picton, which I have covered here on this show, the bounds of some people's degenerate psyche is evidently limitless, and many people believe that all of these missing women are the work of a single serial killer. Among the list of women whose deaths and disappearances are being investigated as part of ePANA is 22-year-old Tamara Chipman. Tamara was a young mother to a son, Jaden, who was two and a half when Tamara disappeared. She was a member of the Morristown Band, also known as the Whitsett First Nation, but spent her years in Terrace, about halfway between Prince George and Prince Rupert. Tamara was glamorous, or at least she looks that way to me. She has a classic old Hollywood essence about her from the photos I've seen, with beautiful makeup and beautiful curly hair. But despite her classical beauty, her forte was the outdoors, fishing and being out on the water in particular. Tamara's father was a fisherman by trade, so she spent lots of time with him out on his boat and even with her grandfather who was a mechanic, often helping him wherever she could with the repair of heavy machinery. According to her aunt, Gladys Radek, Tamara was beautiful with a contagious smile and a sense of humor that uplifted the entire family. She was bold and she was fearless. Regardless of Tamara's charm and way of making happiness seem effortless, being a single mom was really hard, especially a young one, given she had her son Jaden at only 19 years old. Tamara's family recalls how much of a toll it took on Tamara to undertake the huge responsibility of motherhood. Her own mother, Corey Millwater, remembers worrying about Tamara as she started to notice her daughter hanging out with what she calls a quote-unquote rough crowd, and she saw Tamara starting to act unlike her usual self. According to some reports I read, Tamara dabbled in sex work as a means to make some money, but didn't necessarily make it a career. At the time of her disappearance, she was also facing three criminal assault charges and was fighting for custody of her son with Jaden's father. Before I continue, I have to note that Tamara's family does not like the designation of quote-unquote sex worker or labeling her behavior as risky. These terms tend to be useless in investigations and are used to stigmatize and frankly at least partially justify the disappearances of vulnerable women in the eyes of many. We have talked about this before on my show, but let me say it again. Just because someone engages in sex work doesn't mean it quote-unquote makes sense that they disappeared or were subject to violence. Just because someone engages in risky behavior, however one defines it, that doesn't mean it makes sense that something bad happened to them. Tamara hanging out with a rough crowd or engaging in sex work does not justify her disappearance, and nor does hitchhiking, which is something else she was known to do. To some, that's a risky behavior. To others, such as Tamara, it was a normal practice that's been seen in communities for years. Although some may say that hitchhiking itself is risky, Along Highway 16, it is a common practice. This area is isolated despite being frequently traveled. There is no accessible public transit. And I'm sure, as we all know, buying a car isn't cheap. It should never be the case that women trying to travel back and forth between cities and towns that they are familiar with along a highway are automatically subject to risk just by trying to get around in the same way that they're used to. But it just so happened to be that at the time of Tamara's disappearance, she was hitchhiking along Highway 16. 
Tamara Chipman was last seen on September 21st of 2005, hitchhiking at Industrial Park just outside of Prince Rupert. When she first went missing, she had been hitchhiking and traveling back and forth along Highway 16 quite a bit, with connections to Terrace and Prince Rupert. This is an important detail, because when Tamara first went missing, nobody knew about it. Tamara's family and Terrace thought she was still in Prince Rupert, where she was supposed to be, and her contacts in Prince Rupert thought she had left to return to Terrace and be with her family. It wasn't until early November, almost two months after Tamara disappeared, that her father realized she hadn't been in contact with anyone since September. He had returned from a fishing expedition and found that, upon his return, Tamara had left no messages for him, which was very abnormal, because the two were very close, and he was fully expecting to hear from his daughter when he got back. He took it upon himself to investigate, contacting every family member and friend he knew should have been in contact with Tamara, but to his surprise, nobody knew where she was. This was especially weird given the close connections she had with particular family members and friends, not just limited to her father. Tamara's aunt, Gladys Radek, was very close with Tamara and had been for years. When Tamara was only 18 years old, Gladys moved back to Terrace after relocating to pursue charges against an ex of hers, and during this time, Tamara was her rock. They visited almost every day with each other and had coffee and confided in each other about their struggles, their dreams, and even Tamara's desire to one day get married and start a larger family. It made no sense that not only was Tamara not in contact with her family in Terrace, but her contacts in Prince Rupert had no idea where she was either. Tamara's father then reported her disappearance to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which was on November 15th of 2005. Soon after, they announced the launch of a joint investigation between the Terrace and Prince Rupert RCMP detachments. When her community realized that Tamara was missing and news began to spread, volunteers from the Morristown Band began organizing on-the-ground searches to find her. In addition, Tamara's ex-boyfriend and the father of her son, Jaden, voluntarily took a polygraph exam back in December to prove he had nothing to do with her disappearance. His alibi was related to working in Terrace at the time, meanwhile, she disappeared from around Prince Rupert. It seemed like everyone who loved Tamara, at one point or another, wanted to step up to the plate to find out what happened to her. And before long, it became apparent that whatever did happen to Tamara, it was unlikely to be at the hands of someone she knew, and more than likely to be at the hands of someone along Highway 16. In early 2006, tips about Tamara's case began really slowing down, and even after the family posted a $3,000 reward for information leading to her discovery, nothing new came in the case. Before even a year had passed, it went cold. Gladys, Tamara's aunt, was quickly designated to be the spokesperson of the family in her case. She was the one who was advocating for police searches because in the early days, Gladys wasn't sure if there was much of that even going on. It seemed like the only people who were really searching were the people of Tamara's community. It seemed largely up to Gladys herself and her community members to find Tamara. Frustrated by this, as well as the circumstances of other missing and murdered indigenous women in their area, Gladys went on to co-found Walk for Justice with another indigenous woman named Bernice Williams. 
Bernice is actually one of the other people on the National Inquiry Family Advisory Committee, and evidently another person with connections to many who have suffered the grief of missing and murdered family members. Walk for Justice commemorates all the lives lost during the history of this epidemic of missing people, and there were many reasons for the two to feel compelled to start it, including Tamara's disappearance, but not limited to it. Only a month before Tamara disappeared, a 14-year-old girl named Isla Sarek Ogar from Prince Rupert and a member of the Lahaidi Tene First Nation was murdered, and both before and after them both, many others. Despite all of their activism, Tamara's case has had little updates. The last time the RCMP was in contact with Gladys directly, according to one article I read by the CBC in a series about missing and murdered Indigenous women, was back in 2013, 10 years ago now. All this despite Tamara being included on the list of women whose cases are being investigated by the then Highway of Tears task force. Back in 2015, after a decade of no answers or justice in Tamara's case, her family had effectively given up all hope in finding out answers from police. Amongst the dozens of women who are victimized along Highway 16, many don't even make the list, and it's clearly a much larger issue than police have the capacity for. To Gladys, it didn't seem like Tamara was a high-priority issue for them. This is why we talk about these cases, to make it a high-priority issue. However, there was one exception to that, one particular officer who made it a point to let Gladys know that he would not forget Tamara's name amongst the whirlwind of cases that came into the RCMP each year. Eric Stubbs was a newly arrived RCMP staff officer when Tamara disappeared, and according to an article in the Ottawa Citizen by Andrew Duffy, Gladys says that Eric was, quote, the only officer who was ever like that with me, in reference to making sure she got updates about Tamara's case. Quote, I considered him kind of a friend. He was the only one who went out of his way to come and see me personally. As of today, Tamara's son, Jaden, is all grown up and about to exit his teenage years. There's not much about him online, but he does work and he's done his best to live a normal life despite being yet another person with direct connections to a missing indigenous woman and likely resulting grief and trauma. If you or someone you know may have information about Tamara's disappearance, you can contact the Prince George RCMP at 250-561-3300, or you can contact the ePANA tip line at 1-877-543-4822. Another young, missing Indigenous mother is Roxanne Fleming, who was 18 years old when she disappeared from the Lillooet District Hospital in Lillooet, British Columbia. Roxanne was slender with beautiful brown hair like Tamara Chipman. Also like her, she had a contagious smile and was the mother to a child who was very young when she disappeared. Roxanne's daughter, Candace, was only just a year old in August of 1982 when Roxanne went missing. Roxanne Fleming was born with the name Roseanne Darcy Copeland in 1964 and was a member of the Nequatqua Band, she was placed up for adoption shortly after she was born, and was in the care of a family who was not from a First Nations community. Aside from that being a major difference between her and Tamara, the other is that while Tamara's case is on the ePANA list, and has been connected to activity along the Highway of Tears, Roxanne's has not, and thus receives much less attention. 
Roxanne, who also goes by Rose and Roseanne, was only 17 years old when she gave birth to her daughter. She ended up having a baby girl named Candace, and only a few months after she was born, her father and Roxanne's partner was killed in a work-related accident in April of 1982. Candace was only five months old at the time, and suddenly, Roxanne was dealing with immense grief as well as being forced to undertake the role of a single parent. A woman named Bonnie McDonald, a friend of Candace's father and someone who quickly became a confidant of Roxanne, saw her going down a dark path. After the accident, she saw Roxanne going down what she called a downward spiral. I'm not sure exactly what this entails, but whatever was going on, it was serious enough for the British Columbia Ministry of Child and Family Development to apprehend Candace. Whatever was going on, Roxanne was unfit to be a parent in their eyes. Although, according to Bonnie, Roxanne knew she was not in the right place to be a mother at that time, let alone a single one, the situation evidently must have added to the grief and heartbreak experienced by her, making the whole situation so much worse. Thankfully, after the work-related accident that unfortunately took the life of Roxanne's daughter's father, his friend Bonnie was able to become closer with Roxanne, and through that friendship, the two were able to negotiate for Bonnie to adopt Candace and take over custody so that Roxanne could begin to heal and recover without jeopardizing Candace's wellness or having her placed with some random family like she was. In this moment, Roxanne's selflessness and trust in others was a quality admired by Bonnie. It was a tough choice to let Candace go up for adoption, but it was the right one to make in that moment. And Bonnie, especially in hindsight, is glad that Roxanne trusted her enough to care for Candace. However, Bonnie was quoted as saying that Roxanne's trust in others is a quality that, although many admired, is one that may have led to her disappearance. Quote, She's one of those types that I think would have been easy to suck in, you know? She would have taken anybody at face value. Roxanne Fleming was last seen leaving the Lillooette Hospital where she was being treated for a broken finger back in 1982. After that, it's unclear what happened or where she could have went. Her movements are totally unknown. However, her adoptive parents, the parents who raised her, didn't report her missing until October of 2003, 21 years after she vanished. Personally, I can't seem to figure out why this is the case, and the only possible insight or explanation I can find comes from the comments section of an article by infonews.ca. In the comment section of this article about Roxanne's disappearance, a woman named Terry Shivlinski commented, quote, Roxanne is a free spirit and would come and go like the wind. Everyone just expected her to show up one day. The last I saw her was having a good time at the plaza in Kamloops, British Columbia, in the summer of 1984. There is obviously a notable difference between police reports saying that Roxanne was last seen in 1982 in this woman saying that she saw Roxanne in 1984. I decided to message Terry myself on Facebook to see if she would be willing to discuss further about that comment. This is what she told me. She said she had nothing further really to elaborate on, other than, quote, I was with a friend celebrating her dad's wedding, and we ran into Roxanne at the Plaza Hotel bar and partied with her for a while, and we left. That was the last I saw her. 
She was my stepsister, and I have assumed that she has passed away ever since her parents passed away and she never came back. She and her dad, Gordon Fleming, were very close. I wish I could be more helpful. When I asked Terry if it was normal for Roxanne to quote-unquote disappear for periods of time, as she alluded to in her original comment, she said yes. Although this is one woman's personal anecdote, I'm inclined to believe her story about Roxanne, because sightings of Roxanne over the coming years become more frequent, and then suddenly they drop off and she actually goes missing. Let me explain what I mean. In 2003, after the official missing persons report for Roxanne was filed by her adoptive parents, Roxanne's daughter Candace, who is now on her own journey to find her mother, was contacted by police after the report was made to give some information over. Candace admits that she didn't have much information to give over, nor did she give much thought to her missing mother before the missing persons report was filed in 2003. This was because she was being raised by a mother who cared for her, and that was Bonnie. But ever since that report was made and Candace was contacted, she's been able to learn more about her mother, which has been critical given her age when Roxanne disappeared. Candace had no organic memories of her, but has been learning about her slowly but surely. One critical piece of information that Candace learned back in 2018 was that Roxanne's case had been transferred to the Edmonton Police Service in Alberta, an entirely different province, because reportedly Roxanne had been in contact with the Workers' Compensation Board in Alberta between 1986 and 1987, and now her profile with the Edmonton Police officially has Roxanne's date of going missing as December 15th of 1986. I asked Terry Shivlinski about this, and she told me that Roxanne traveled back and forth between Edmonton, Alberta and Lillooet, BC quite often. She also said that Roxanne was seen in Lillooet in 1986, but not by her personally. She said that it was her own mother who saw her, and her mother has passed away now. Despite some of the preliminary reports saying that Roxanne went missing in 1982, that certainly doesn't seem to be the case. But it's still unclear of what these sightings really mean, and she hasn't been seen since 1986, for real this time. And so finding out what's happened to her has been a very important journey for her daughter. The sightings of Roxanne in different places throughout the years have obviously given Candace and other family members some hope that she is still alive. However, given the amount of time that has passed, Terry Shulinski and others think otherwise, and that it's likely that Roxanne has passed by now. As well, investigators have reportedly followed up on every lead that comes in to no avail, including all the sightings that have been reported, and they've also tested her DNA against other missing people in British Columbia with no luck. I personally have many questions in Roxanne's case, including the desire to know more about the timeline of her disappearance, which is something investigators are reportedly currently working on. I want to know where Roxanne was between 1982 and 1984, after she left the Lillooet District Hospital and got some help for her finger. I also want to know where she was between 1984 and 1986, when she was in contact with the Alberta Workers' Compensation Board. I want to know what happened after she was seen back in Lillooet in 1986, allegedly by the mother of Terry Shivlinski, and I want to know if anyone has seen her since. I personally wonder if it's possible that Roxanne is alive and well, 
living in a community somewhere in Canada under one of the many different names she went by. Rose Elaine Stevenson, Rose Darcy Stevenson, Roseanne Stevenson, Roseanne Darcy Copeland, or just Roseanne Darcy. It's possible she's living somewhere in the places she was known to frequent, such as Vancouver, Kamloops, British Columbia, or Edmonton. The alternate possibility is that she was kidnapped and was the victim of foul play. But given the sightings of her, I don't think this is plausible. At least, I don't think that's what happened back in 1982. It's hard to say what's happened since. But I'd like to believe that she's just living somewhere else, possibly maybe amongst an unhoused population or just under a different name. If that is true, and if Roxanne is alive today, she would be approximately 61 years old, and she's been missing since she was 18. If you or someone you know has information about Roxanne Fleming, you can contact the Edmonton Police Service at 780-423-4567. You can also get in contact with the Lillooet Detachment of the RCMP at 250-256-4244. Both Tamara Chipman and Roxanne Fleming are only two women out of many whose stories need to be heard. The missing and murdered Indigenous women of Canada are daughters, friends, mothers of their own children, and were loved by the people around them. They are being victimized at an alarming rate, and it's something that is completely lacking from the forebrain of society right now, and that needs to change. Please join me in discussing their cases as I cover them, and informing your friends and family about the injustices faced by Indigenous women in Canada. I'm sure you can all imagine that if Tamara and Roxanne were white women, their stories would have played out much differently. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. You can catch the next episode on June 30th, 2023, and the next episode in the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls series on July 15th. Until then, I hope you all stay safe, and I highly encourage you to do some reading on your own. I will have the 94 calls to action alongside all other mentioned documents, including the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's final report, linked on my website at crimewopediapod.ca. In addition, you can find all of the source material I used for these cases there as well. You can also find me on Instagram at crimewopediapod, and there, as well as on my website, you can request a case or you can find out any updated information about the ones I've covered. I would love to be able to give you some good news about these cases, especially the ones that are coming in this series about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. By the end of the year, that's my goal. That's what I hope for. I want to give you some good news about one of these women. At least, just one. But until then, stay safe everyone, and I'll see you here next time for the next episode. <laughs>